Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So we're going to start out talking about bugs a little bit. I had some uh, interesting bits of uh, bug lore to share with you. I was uh, reading a science fiction book the other day about what happens when you load an upload virus into uh, biological beings, in this case, spiders and ants. And part of this led to a long discursive discussion of something I had not heard about before, the uh, Passus genus of beetles. So we've all heard about the Trojan horse, right? When the Trojans opened their city's gates to a giant wooden horse, but of course the Greek soldiers were hiding inside. Well, the same scenario is actually unfolding in the insect world, which is already very bizarre and cool, but also it's creating hyper-fast evolution, evolution faster than any of us ever thought could happen. So stay tuned for more about that. These bugs are called ant nest beetles. They're really bizarre and fascinating because they hack the communication system of ants. Now, normally anything that were, was inside an anthill or inside an ant nest would be detected immediately and attacked and killed. But these, ant, these beetles are not only able to live among the colony as royalty, but they can actually get the ants to feed them uh, and they can Prey, they can prey on the animals, uh, eat them, and the animals don't notice that they've been eaten, or at least their friends don't notice that they've been eaten. Where's Jack? I don't know. He seems to have gone away. Oh, well, back to work. Trick the ants. Yes, so, and these bugs can also trick the ants into actually raising their young. Now, that, of course, happens with the uh, bird called the cuckoo and a couple of other nest parasites that are out there. But over the last few million years, these beetles have rapidly diversified uh, as they've come across new ant host. And there's been this remarkable adaptive radiation. And this is one of the most rapid examples of adaptive radiation that's ever been seen. So what's happening is that the animals are adapting out to new environments. They're finding new kinds of ants. And how do they do this? Well, ants communicate with each other through two methods. They have a system called stridulation, which they make by rubbing parts of their body together. So think cricket noises, right, where they're rubbing their legs together. Well, ants rub bits of themselves and create sounds. And the possus beetles also stridulate, but they produce uh, chemicals. Now, their stridulation mimics those of the host ants, but the chemicals they secrete from their antenna are both power, uh, powerfully attractive, but they also tend to make the uh, the passus beetles look like ant royalty, so the queen ants, so to speak. So the beetles are able to hijack the normal functioning of ant society. There are other cases of chemical trickery like this, but this rapid evolution is such that many species are all over the world, including different ant hosts, and this has evolved independently in Africa, 
Southeast Asia, and elsewhere in the Old World tropics, but not in the Western Hemisphere, which is rather to say North America, Canada, and South America. So it's uh, it hasn't gotten here yet. But they're also really cool looking. Go ahead and search for a picture of the Possus beetles because they sort of look like an ant that's welded on to um, an early primitive segmented uh, worm, like a centipede, so to speak. So if you can think of a of a very large ant welded onto a similarly scaled ant, uh, centipede, they're sort of like centaurs. They're or um, you know, one of those roly-poly bugs, you know, with an ant welded onto the front. They're they're quite fantastic looking, and they have greatly weird faces. And they're really different anatomically from one group to another. They've uh, A lot of work's been done on a group in Madagascar. They're called the Malagasy, brightly colored, very cool looking. And they can all be traced to a common ancestor from 2.6 million years ago. But there's... 86 offshoot species that uh, have evolved at about 400,000 years between species. And that's evolutionarily anything under a million is really astonishing. And for this to keep happening, it's, it's really crazy. The other thing that's interesting is that the forms are converging. So they started out more different and now they're evolving to look more and more similar. And like I said, they look kind of like an ant, like an ant centaur. Uh, and maybe that's why, because that's the most, uh, pre- that's the most successful way for them. And as they looked at them, they began to see a lot of really interesting work with molecular analysis. They're using, uh, a technique called molecular phylogenetics to build uh, evolutionary trees on this. And I'm very, very familiar with uh, molecular evolutionary trees because that's what my husband's PhD thesis was in. And uh, they've discovered uh, quite a lot of interesting stuff. And now they're going back and looking at the microbiomes, the rather the molecular uh, microbiomes of the different uh, species of Possus beetles and pulling out the DNA of the ants. And it looks like they're getting the information to fool the ants because, of course, all these ants have different scent cues and will attack each other. Uh, if you take an ant from, you know, colony A and put it in colony B, they're they're going to kill it. So uh, the bugs eat the ants and then manage to steal the DNA and make these scent compounds that fool that specific species of ant. And uh, they're doing it very, very rapidly. So I think we've all had, in the last three years, a uh, an example of rapid evolution, and it's not always going in our favor. So some interesting, uh, a little bit of interesting things about uh, bacteria now. You know, there's 14 million tons of plastic that we estimate get into our oceans each year. But when we sample it, we're only finding about 1% of it. And some of that uh, missing garbage is probably being eaten up by bacteria that live in seawater. So in order to see what this would be like, researchers at the Royal Netherlands Institute for Sea Research treated plastic with UV light, 
to mimic sunlight, which is what happens, of course, with plastic in the ocean. And then when it broke it down into small microplastic, they fed it to a bacteria called Rhodococcus ruber, which is very common in the oceans. And it's one of the ones that's been studied because it's able to transform pollutants into harmless molecule. And sure enough, the bacteria just broke the plastic down into carbon dioxide and uh, used it as food. The researchers estimate that just this one species could break down about 1% of the available plastic in the ocean in a year. Now, it's probably there's probably going to be more bacteria that are capable of doing this, given, among other things, adaptive radiation. Uh, but maybe that's how we do it. Maybe we we essentially farm bacteria that can help break down plastic, because we sure do have a microplastic problem, and these bacteria are harmless and non-toxic, so maybe we can digest our microplastics into something just like that. Speaking of digesting, one of my favorite dishes is mushrooms, and one of the easiest mushrooms to grow is the humble oyster mushroom. Really delicious sautéed in butter, but not necessarily so benign. Turns out that the that this mushroom is actively carnivorous, uh, like Venus flytraps and pitcher plants. And so whenever the uh, oyster mushroom, mushroom's day-to-day diet is low in nitrogen, it starts by making um, a toxin. It wants to feed on the nematode worms that are microscopic little worms that are also find, found in dying wood. And the mushroom actually makes these little lollipops that are uh, a bubble, and they're filled with a toxin called 3-octanone. And any worm that comes along and thinks that's food and eats it gets paralyzed within a minute. So it's very good for getting rid of nematodes. Nematodes, by the way, are a crop disruptive, disruptive thing. And so uh, using uh, using a, uh, a mushroom to kill a nematode has a nice uh, feel to it because you get to eat your pesticide. Uh, and maybe we'll just synthesize it rather than growing uh, mushrooms. Uh, probably we'll have to because when you when we fertilize land, we add nitrogen. And so the nitrogen will interfere with uh, this production of this toxin because it's only in low nitrogen environments that the mushroom takes the trouble to make this so that it can kill off a few nematodes and suck out their nitrogen. So pretty crazy, huh? Amino acids, proteins have lots of nitrogen, and that's one of the things that uh, the, the can be very rare in soil. Peas and peanuts and le- other legumes like soy have a symbiotic relationship with a type of soil bacteria, and that allows them to fix uh, nitrogen in nodules. And so these are often used as cover crops because they are a natural form of, if you plow them under, a natural form of fertilizer for whatever crop it is that you're trying to get grow to grow, besides which you could eat peas and beans and so you've got a win-win there, enriching the nitrogen in your soil and getting yourself some sustenance. Now, an unexpected benefit 
of an old-fashioned drug has recently surfaced. This is a TB vaccine. It's called Bacillus calmet-guerin. It's used for tuberculosis. It was developed in the 1920s, and it's actually the oldest vaccine still in use on the planet. It's given to millions of babies in Africa and Asia each year, But recent evidence has emerged that TB may not be the only disease that the shot, BCG, protects against. Now we get weird. Mounting evidence suggests that it may also provide immune response to ward off other diseases, including autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes and multiple sclerosis. There's also evidence that it may delay or prevent the development of Alzheimer's disease and even certain types of cancers. So they quote in this article one study from Guinea-Bissau, which found that children with a low birth weight who got this shot had a 40% risk of all-cause mortality in the first year of life. So it's clearly protecting them not just against TB, but against a whole bunch of other things. There was another study in Canada that showed that early childhood BCG recipients had a 35% reduced risk of developing type 1 diabetes in adulthood. Some researchers saying somehow the BCG trains the immunity to help the immune system uh, differentiate between self and non-self and thus uh, reinforces the prohibition against autoimmune disease. No one's really quite sure how it worked, but We've had this out there for many, many years. Here's the rub. Isn't there always a catch when you get good news like this? This drug's been off patent for decades. So pharmaceutical companies have very little incentive to fund studies on it. And it's uh, a stu- it's a kind of a market failure in action. Actually, I was listening to a really uh, interesting, uh, I think it's... Mm, Freakonomics, if I'm not mistaken, where they were talking about how do we get drugs paid for when they're rare, when the disease is rare, and there's no market for developing that drug. And they were talking about creating a kind of subscription model, you know, like we have with uh, certain websites and with our television, where the money to produce the drugs comes from everybody paying a subscription every month so that if they get the rare disease, they've got a, uh, they've, they've got access to the drug because they are, they've purchased the subscription. And this would probably be done through insurance companies or employers. Uh, it's a crazy idea, but we really do have a problem with funding research. And so if you get a chance to listen to that podcast, I'd be interested in what you think about it. So one more story before we get to the emails for the day. Uh, concussions. Now, I was taught when when someone gets a concussion, you should take them out of school for a few days and have them rest. But that may actually be counterproductive. This was, again, research coming out of Canada, and they looked at data because, hey, they've got an electronic medical record that talks to all the doctors in Canada, so they could gather data without running into privacy issues. Yes. Oh, well. Oh, well. Uh, anyway, getting back to the study. The children in Canada admitted to ERs were tracked, and they found that those over 
8, who missed no more than two days of school, experienced fewer symptoms at 14 after the injury than those who were off for longer. This is what's, well, you could say, well, the ones who went back to school sooner were the ones who weren't as affected, right? That's the first thing I thought when I read this. But actually, the link was strongest amongst those who had the worst symptoms initially, so like headaches, dizziness, or nausea. Then previous studies have suggested that maybe post-concussion restrictions increase the risk of depression and anxiety. Now, researchers thinking that maybe getting back to mixing with friends, getting back to a normal sleep schedule, not stressing about getting behind in class, and probably also getting a little help from the teacher, which is there's no way you can control for that, but it would make sense, may help the kids recover faster. Also, light to moderate exercise as long as it doesn't risk another bang to the head, that could be beneficial. So obviously no contact sports, probably no bicycling, but, you know, walking, ping pong, things like that, Uh, moving all of your four extremities and getting your heart beat up increases blood flow to the brain, right? And that's going to help speed up healing. Another thing that should always be done after a concussion, folks, is DHA, which is a type of amino uh, of omega three uh, fatty acids, and DHA, uh, docahexanoic acid, is brain food. It's a big part uh, of the components of the neuronal cell wall, and this is also something I recommend that pregnant women take as a supplement. Uh, there's been some studies looking at this, small studies, you know, not uh, widely replicated, that suggested that it may actually have a favorable effect of 5 to 10 points on the child's eventual IQ. But I wouldn't bank on that one. It was, uh, it was a study that had some, potentially, some methodologic flaws. Hard to do studies like this because keeping track of people for the you know, five, at least five to 10 years it takes for the baby to develop into something you can give an IQ test to uh, leads to a lot of dropouts and dropouts really mess with your statistics. So let's go to some emails. And the first one tonight comes from Sandy. And uh, Sandy is not telling me here where she's writing from. So dear Dr. Don. I have had a series of dramatic responses to various pharmaceutical drugs. After taking tramadol post-hip replacement surgery in 2019, I had a two- to three-month experience of dramatic insomnia. I've had no insomnia either before or after that experience. In the summer of 2022, after taking amoxicillin for four days, I had significant impairment of communication, organization, and computational skills. My previous levels of ability returned after about six weeks. I rarely take pharmaceuticals, but in reviewing my health history, I remembered that I had had a mild cognitive reaction to other antibiotics. While the response to Cipro was the most memorable, I also had mild impacts from nitrofurantuan and sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim, Bactrim, or uh, Septra, to those of us who don't like to say that, that jawbreaker of a name. My most recent experience has, was a dramatic withdrawal from oxycodone, which I had been taken for three weeks post-complex knee surgery in late 2022. 
Throughout my surgical recovery, my doses were low, and at the time when withdrawal symptoms began, had been taking 7.5 milligrams every two hours, which is still a decent dose of oxycodone. My withdrawal symptoms, that's my parenthetical comment there, my withdrawal symptoms lasted about seven weeks. They were classic withdrawal symptoms, but without digestive disturbances. I saw an allergist who could offer no help because my responses were neurological. He could not test or assess the source of my responses. I also had the same response from a doctor who specializes in allergic reactions to antibiotics. Yeah, and I agree with those doctors. Uh, Sandy, I don't think this is uh, an antibiotic. I'm a healthy woman in my 60s. I do not and have not used alcohol or any drugs. I don't use over-the-counter meds or eat sugar. My diet's very healthy. I have regular meditation and movement practices. Now I'm concerned about taking any kind of drug. I will be having dental work in the future where I will need to take antibiotics. I appreciate any reflections about this as well as guidance for where, who to outreach for help in determining why these responses may be happening and how to assess what antibiotic may be safer for my use. Well, first of all, Sandy, I want to refer you to some of the uh, shows I've been doing in the last, oh, I think about four months. For a while, I was doing a feature called Gene of the Week. And one of the things I focused on were the detoxification genes, which uh, you're really ringing a bell for me here. So let me go back and highlight the tramadol and the oxycodone pieces of this first. So first of all, uh, tramadol is a substrate for a gene called CYP2D6. And 2D6 is actually really important because it is responsible for converting codeine to morphine. And that's really how codeine works. And so, right, oxycodone is a codeine-like molecule. And it gets converted, uh, it ha- it, it gets converted by these enzymes, 3A4 and 2D6, in, and in the process of that, it changes its behavior and its activity. Now, people can have slower than normal 2D6s, or they can have faster than normal 2D6s. And there's also drugs that either speed up or slow down this in individuals. So, Poor metabolizers occur in uh, about up to 6 to 10% of uh, Caucasians and about 3 to 6% of Mexican-Americans, 1% of Asians. Then there are the ultra-rapid metabolizers, which Portuguese and Greeks both have 10%. Saudi Arabia and uh, Ethiopians and have 20% and 30% ultra-rapid metabolizers, respectively. Now, ultra-rapid metabolizers can run into really, really fast problems because they will sometimes require higher doses of drug to, to get anesthesia because they are burning through it so quickly. But as they burn through it and convert it to to more the ultra fast metabol I'm sorry that's the slow metabolizers so they the slow 2d6 don't make morphine out of codeine and so they don't they require higher high and higher doses and when they finally have to process that they have a prolonged effect the ultra rapid metabolizers can actually get toxic whereas they can so you give them some codeine it doesn't work so you give them more they then they metabolize it so fast 
that they get a toxic level of morphine, whereas before it was a little morphine, it was just zipping through their their system. But you reach this threshold where they you really knock them out and suppress their respiration. And there's at least one case in the medical literature of an infant who was breastfeeding actually dying because the mother was an ultra-rapid metabolizer and the child was not. So the, the child died of respiratory depression from breastfeeding, and the mother didn't even feel... Uh, the codeine because it wasn't, you know, reach it wasn't providing any kind of real anesthesia for her. So things that are, uh, so hydrocodone is one of the things that passes through this pathway. And tramadol is another one that passes through uh, this pathway. So that's why I'm, I'm sort of focusing on that for this part of the problem. Most of the antibiotics you mentioned do not pass through that pathway, but some of these antibiotics do affect the speed that that uh, drug gets broken down. And let me see, there's a list here of the antibiotics, but uh, it didn't print. You know how it is when you try to print something from the web. So I'm sorry, I can't give you a list of the interfering substances. Uh, Things that are also broken down by this that we've all heard of would be a lot of the antidepressants and... uh, the uh, drug metoclopramide, some of the blood pressure medicines like metoprolol, uh, and Venergan, which is a commonly used drug for uh, nausea and can make a lot of drowsiness. If you're a slow metabolizer, it's going to build up in your system. Another one is tamoxifen, which is super important because it's a drug that's used to to prevent estrogen from being made in breast cancer patients. And if you, in this case, it's the 2D6 that activates the tamoxifen. So if you don't process it, you can't activate it, you can't, it won't work for you. And this probably represents a lot of the variation in the uh, SSRIs, the Prozac group of drugs and its cousins, including things like Effexor, which is actually an SNRI. So there's lots of drugs which would be affected by you having something off about your 2D6. And I actually think you probably do. Uh, with the antibiotics, I think there might be a problem in 3A4. And as I said, if you go back in the archives at AskDrDawn.com, you'll find uh, descriptions of what those are and how they work. I'm not going to belabor the issue except to give you some specific advice there, which is the brain fog with the antibiotics. Now, I think that represented a lipopolysaccharide accumulation. So in other words, the antibiotics killed your microbiome or part of your microbiome, and the dead bacteria form something called lipopolysaccharides. That's that, that's a toxin. And when you did that, you got a toxic burden, and possibly because of how these toxins are broken down in your brain, you ended up with a brain fog problem or an inflammatory problem as a result. And we know that LPS can uh, be a factor in autoimmune disease. It can be a a factor in uh, antibiotic side effects. And I think in your case, it's this interaction between the microbiome and the LPS. Uh, If you have to take a single dose of an antibiotic, I would preload with, uh, I, I would, I guess what I would do is I'd preload with good bacteria and I would do saunas 
or very, very hot Epsom salt baths to try to sweat out any LPS that's produced by a single dose. You will get a die-off, but it won't be as massive as, for example, the three to 10-day course of uh, the sulfamethoxazole that's typically given for a bladder infection. Our next email comes from Danny Donovan. Danny is writing from uh, Connecticut. Uh, Subject, carotid artery. Your audio program is part of my weekly life, and I truly enjoy everyone. If someone had a partial blocked carotid artery, could a person accidentally release the plaque by pinching the artery, pressing the artery, or outside means and cause a stroke? And unfortunately... Uh, Danny, the answer is absolutely it's a thing. You can break plaque. It is brittle. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had one of those glues or maybe uh, seen uh, a doctor use uh, one of these vials in the setting of an emergency room where you have a little a little vial within a vial and you squeeze the plastic vial and it breaks the glass vial inside and mixes the two compounds. And you have, for a short period of time, something that is you know, transformed from the other substances, maybe something that will harden into a glue or something that will uh, produce some other chemical reaction that has utility but can't be mixed except at the actual moment of use. Well, you can think of the carotid artery as being the plastic vial. The outside of the carotid is muscular, but squishy. So it, you can compress the carotid artery with a finger to check the pulse, for example. And that's usually done in emergency situations. But we also encourage people to gently place their hand on their neck to check their pulse. And you're not going to give yourself a stroke doing that because the when you're exercising the artery is right there pound 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 uh, on the other hand if someone strangles somebody and puts their thumbs on the carotid artery and squeezes you cause very rapid unconsciousness but you can also cause a stroke and the place where this really comes up is in massage so a lot of times people come into my office for acupuncture and I'll examine their neck, and they'll have pain in the muscle that reaches from the the clavicle, the collarbone, to the jaw. And that's that muscle when you tighten your jaw that stands out, the sternocleidomastoid. It's an important accessory breathing muscle. And uh, so people often have trigger points in there. And unfortunately, the carotid artery runs right under that muscle. So if you're trying to push hard to work out tr- trigger points, you can actually cause a stroke. And there are numerous case reports that I was able to find with a simple literature search uh, showing manipulation of the neck uh, and massage of the neck could cause this. And there's another condition that you can get into trouble with, but it's definitely the atherosclerosis definitely hardens up the artery on the inside, you see. So you've still got the nice rubbery thing on the outside, but the inside has gotten very stiff. And that plaque can be like peeling paint, and little bits of it can pop off. But more commonly, what happens is it cracks. And then where it cracks, you've exposed collagen to the blood, and the uh, platelets jump on 
the collagen and immediately try to disguise it so that the whole artery doesn't clot because you're starting a cascade of events. Collagen causes blood clotting because it's exposed collagen doesn't happen inside a normal blood vessel. It only happens when that blood vessel gets cut. So the first thing the system wants to do is plug the leak. It's like in a science fiction story when you get a ho- uh, when you're in space in a vacuum and you get a hole in the uh, in the uh, wall of the spaceship. You want to plug that thing up right away, and the platelets jump on it and do that. But they're mushy, and they break off. And little platelet plugs, which are very much like the consistency of uh, not quite solidified Jello, will will loop off into the circulation head head downstream head downstream which is effectively the brain and hence the stroke there's also fainting and i mean we all remember the vulcan neck pinch but there's a condition called carotid sinus hypersensitivity which i just want to talk about briefly this carotid sinus is right at the level of the adams uh, apple at about c3 and what happens then is that when there's pressure on the uh, on the carotid artery at that level, if it can impact the carotid sinus. Under normal circumstances, the job of the carotid sinus is to sense the pressure inside the artery and slow down the heart rate if that pressure gets too high. So we use this. Medically, if someone has a very rapid heartbeat, we can try massaging one side of the neck at the third cervical level, which is, again, your Adam's apple, your thyroid cartilage, and we can slow down the heartbeat. And this is used sometimes to stop arrhythmias. But it's turning out that this is actually very common as a, as a cause of falls in people uh, over 65 years of age because they develop hypersensitivity to they first they develop hypertension and then they develop hypersensitivity of the pressure sensor and so their own blood pressure surges trigger fainting which is counterintuitive but in a study of a thousand people with no history of syncope dizziness or falls they were uh they had them lie down flat and they measured the beat to beat heart rate uh, by and then they gave them a carotid massage for seven seconds, and then they stood them up and they did the same thing. And what they found was, out of a thousand people, thirty nine percent of them had some level of hypersensitivity. Twenty four percent, one quarter of that thousand, actually stopped their heartbeat for three seconds or longer, and about sixteen percent actually had symptoms with this, uh, including fainting. So something to be aware of is be gentle with that carotid, especially if you're over 50, where that particular type of sensitivity becomes much more common. Uh, massage therapists, and I did find an article uh, in Massage Today about this, were basically giving a, a whole bunch of history questions. So, of course, anybody who's had a, a bypass or a stent, anybody who's had a problem with a uh, previous stroke, uh, you know, high, known high cholesterol, known hypertension, you want to stay off the carotid in those individuals and find another way to treat those symptoms. So Jessica from Dudley, Massachusetts writes, 
Widowmaker Heart Attack. Thank you for your audio show and your kindness and willingness to help others. Recently, a friend died from a massive heart attack. He was a male, 58 years old. Earlier in the day, he didn't eat breakfast and felt a little off. But it wasn't until 9 p.m. that night that he started to have chest pains. And by 10 o'clock, he could not be revived. Are there warning signs on the day of a heart attack, or was it just a fluke that he felt a little off that day? If those are warning signs, had he gone to the doctor earlier in the day, would there have been a chance of survival? I will add that he was uh, stubborn about seeing a doctor and hadn't been in years and had a diet of meat, pastry, and other typical uh, American style. Yeah, we call that the sad diet, Jessica, the, the standard American diet. And it's not good for you. Well, the uh, first answer that I would have for you is if every time anybody felt a little bit off, they headed to the emergency room, it would be a disaster because we would not be able to tell the people who were, who were fine from the people who were sick. And we would end up with, um, uh, we'd, we'd lose a lot of people because we wouldn't be able to filter them. And that's, so I don't recommend when you feel a little bit off. Uh, getting regular checkups now, if I had seen, and, and any doctor had seen that individual with that, you know, overweight, that age male, we probably would have wanted to at least know their cholesterol and their blood pressure and a few basic things that give us predictive value about what might be going on with their health. And I think that's really important is those those physicals are not, uh, they really shouldn't be optional because that's the only opportunity that we have to pick stuff up. You may have noticed if you go to an urgent care or anywhere with a sore throat, they'll check your blood pressure. And part of the reason is that might be the only chance in five years that we have to identify high blood pressure in that individual's. If we had well if we had more people going to health fairs and getting their screening and following up with doctors, we'd save a lot of lives. Uh, this move towards video medicine and a hybridized primary care where you're looking at people on the video for their medical problems, I worry about how, in the long run, how much we're going to miss and not pick up because we're not doing those simple vital signs. And until we have and distribute the technology so that I can get an accurate blood pressure, temperature, oxygenation showing up on my video screen, you know, I'm real, plus an accurate weight, uh, I'm, I'm reluctant to say that that is just as good. It's a heck of a lot cheaper for the insurance companies, which is why they like it. Because in case you didn't know, they don't like to spend your money. They don't like to spend the money you've paid them. They like to keep it. So I've promised weird science and frankenfoods. We're going to talk about frankenfoods for a moment here, but let's start with the let's start with what happened in Brazil. So starting in about the 1970s, there were lots of decades worth of research looking at what grocery shoppers bought uh, and tracking their consumption. And in the more recent surveys, the Brazilians were buying way less oil, way less sugar, and way less salt than they had in the past. Well, that sounds good. But in spite of this, people were actually piling on the pounds. 
And between 1975 and 2009, the proportion of Brazilian adults who were overweight or obese doubled. So if they're eating less fat and sugar, why are they getting bigger? And the the, they hadn't really cut down, actually. They were just consuming these nutrients in a new form. So rather than eating the traditional foods, rice, bean, and vegetables, they were eating prepackaged bread, sweets, sausages. And uh, the, the share of cookies and soft drinks had tripled and then quadrupled uh, since 1974, especially soft drinks, four times more. It's ironic because in 1972, people worried Brazilians weren't getting enough to eat, And by 2000, well, that problem was solved, but they had the opposite problem. And so he created a new food classifications uh, system, which I'm going to recommend to you. It breaks down food into the four basic categories, but not the ones you're thinking of. The first category is minimally processed foods, fruits, vegetables, unprocessed meats, what Michael Pollan would call food that looks like food. Then came processed culinary ingredients. That's your oil, your butter, your sugar. These have uh, been processed. You know, oils are hydraulically extracted. Butter goes through quite a lot of, uh, quite a few steps between the cow and the pat of butter on your potato. And sugar, of course, highly processed as well. After that were even more processed foods. And these would be things like canned vegetables, already cooked, smoked meats, Uh, Fresh baked bread, because what's bread? Well, it's first you take the wheat, which are seeds, and then you grind up the seeds, and then you mix it with some stuff, and then you bake it. And simple cheeses. Now, these used carefully are still part of a good diet. So then comes the ultra-processed foods. And the ultra-processed foods are, well, let's talk about what they are. They're made by an industrial process, like extrusion, esterification, carbonation, hydrogenation, molding, pre-frying. A lot of times there are additives designed to make it super super palatable, uh, preservatives that help it stay stable at room temperature. And it might contain actually very high levels of fat, sugar, and salt in combinations, and this is important, that aren't normally found in whole foods. Because among other things, when you eat sugar, you raise insulin. When you raise insulin, you stop your body's breaking down fat. So sugar and fat together is actually a toxic combination. And exactly how many ultra-processed foods don't have both sugar and fat? Not many. All of these are designed to replace cooked food, freshly prepared dishes. And they're also designed to be addictive, to keep you coming back to more and more. And these ultra-processed foods are really dangerous. One of the ones that's been making its way into the health food category, which I'm becoming more and more nervous about, are the the plant-based meat companies. Uh, Impossible, for example, causes its plant-based burger unapologetically processed. Uh, And yes, world hunger and all of that, and we do need processed food. But uh, let me tell you about a randomized control trial that was done in 2019. So this guy asked 20 volunteers to stay at a clinical research hospital in Bethesda where they would be fed a diet of only ultra-processed or whole foods for two weeks and then switch to the other diet for the other two weeks. So free food, free stay at uh, a clinical research hospital, and I'm sure a fee. 
and then they flipped them. So on the ultra-processed diet, they were fed things like tater tots, turkey sausage, spam, uh, and a whole lot of diet lemonade. Uh, and the whole food diet was mostly fruit, vegetables, and unprocessed meat. And for both diets, uh, they provided double the recommended portion of food so that the it was free-range eating, free-range overeating. They could eat as much as they liked. And the critical part is that the diets were nutritionally matched. So each, di- each diet contained about the same amount of protein, fat, carbohydrates, and fiber. And that's really important. So it wasn't a variation in the amount of fat or the amount of carbohydrates or the amount of fiber. But the ultra-processed diet folks ate about 500 calories more. They put on about two pounds. And when they switched those people to the whole food diet, they ate about 500 calories less and lost weight. And remember, these, these foods were nutritionally and calorically equivalent, So, but they were free food. So the portions varied. So there's something about the salt, sugar, and fat content that actually caused people to have impaired satiety. So what can we do? We could re-engineer the food system, or we could give everybody a $1,000 a month drug to to reverse the effects of a ultra-processed diet. Another thing they found in this study was that the people on the ultra-processed diet ate a lot faster than the people on whole foods. Well, part of that may have to do with the fact that they didn't really have to chew the food, did they? They could just sort of let it melt in their mouth and not in their hand. Uh, the ultra-processed foods are dissolved very easily, and your impulse once you, things get to a liquid is to swallow them. And there's also the maltodextrin, which is an ingredient in just about all of those healthy snack foods that come in a chip bag. If no, I don't care what they're made of. If it's got maltodextrin in it, it's a frankenfood. And I don't care if it's all organic and non-GMO. You shouldn't be eating that frequently or at all. Now, in that same study, the weekly cost of the ultra-processed diet was $45 cheaper than the whole food diet. So, We've got to take that into account. We have to get healthy food cheaper, and we have to think about, uh, at least in countries where people are not dying of hunger but dying of excess bad nutrition, to re-engineer the food supply, the food sources, and for goodness sakes, please teach kids in junior high or middle school or whatever you want to call it, teach them to cook, teach them to shop, teach them to follow a recipe. The world, they're, you, they're, they will be healthier. They will have more agency and they will be able to respond to the education that we're working so hard to give them, uh, both because their brains will be in better shape and their bodies as well. So we're going to a caller now, and uh, that is, one moment, uh, David. Hello, David. Welcome to the program. Uh, hello, I, I, I'm, I'm being entertained, uh, like you said at the beginning of the show. <laughs> okay, good. Well, what question can I answer for you, David? Well, um, uh, recently Lancet uh, published uh, uh, a paper uh, claiming uh, that uh, <clears throat> natural immunity was far superior to RNA uh, vaccines. 
And uh, my second thing I wanted to say is that uh, Florida is now, the state of Florida is now uh, suing Pfizer for fraud. And if they're determined that there was fraud, then their, their immunity uh, is stripped. So I wonder if you could comment on those two things. Uh, fraud and their immunity strip? Uh, you, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't quite know what that means. Immunity, their legal immunity from, for, for vaccines will no longer protect them from lawsuits. Oh, 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 I see. So, um, well, Florida's weaponized, you know, they're politically weaponizing a lot of things that uh, they, for, I think, it. let's put it this way. I think they're doing stuff that will absolutely get thrown out when it's scrutinized by a court, but it makes for a good headline. So I'm going to, I'm going to leave Florida aside because I, I feel like, like they're grandstanding and they're doing stuff that's not that they know they can't do, but they're doing it because it makes for a nice news feed. But let's talk to the, about the Lancet thing. I haven't actually read the article, but the you, you'd need to give me some detail about how they were deciding that the immunity was better. And, you know, do you know anything about the study besides just the abstract or the headline, like where? No, no, I looked at some of the abstract, but... I thought maybe you would know a little bit more. Just as an aside about the uh, Florida mm-hmm. uh, thing, um, the nation of Japan is also suing Pfizer for damages, and they, they don't have to worry about immunity laws. They have there's no international immunity laws for it. So mm-hmm. that's another you know. Well, are they supplying? But, but what? Okay, but the devil's in the details, my friends. So right, I, I hear you. Right. Yeah. So so to be right. fair, yeah, I I I think that the. <laughs> Let's just say that there's a whole shoe store versus shoes that are going to drop around um, Monday, you know, a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking and probably a lot of accusations in, on both sides of things. That's that's kind of how the world works. Uh, sure. From the standpoint of uh, a person who willingly took what was effectively an experimental vaccine and and recognized and did it because I was going into the hospital every day full of people who were busy dying from a disease. I think you have to look at context. And if we'd had the leisure to run more studies, I'm sure that we would have uh, had fewer side effects because we would have taken 10 years to come up with a vaccine, which is the usual timetable. And Correct. so there'll be a lot of people who there given the number of people who received vaccine, even if the risk even if the rate of vaccine injury is acceptable statistically, it's still going to be a whole lot of people, right? Because they all got oh. it at once and they all got it and we have a system for ex- acknowledging that there is vaccine injury. And so right. let that me talk about you mentioned Japan though. I want to mention I want to talk about Japan because I want to give you a counterfactual. Uh, and okay. this, this occurred about 20 years ago, and it was with the old uh, pertussis whooping cough vaccine. And at that time, we were using an attenuated live virus, which means that it, could, it, it, was, a, uh, it was capable of causing an infection, but didn't because it had been weakened. But if it wasn't completely weakened, and there was a thing that happened with the polio vaccine many years ago, similar thing. If you if in the processing, if you don't get it fully weakened, it can be infectious. And in the case of the pertussis, there was this paradoxical like allergic reaction to the antigen that occurred with the live antigen. 
And so about one in 50,000 children who got a routine childhood vaccination that all kids were getting because tetanus will kill you and so will so will whooping cough when you're an infant. Uh, so we were using this vaccine and about one in 50,000 kids would get a bad reaction and about one in, I think the number was 500,000, it was it was two in a million, let's say, uh, kids would actually die. They'd get what, what they used to call in the old days brain fever, uh, encephalitis, and they would get a huge inflammatory response and get seizures, and some of them would actually die. And so we knew that we were losing, let's say if you have 30 million kids that you're vaccinating uh, each year for their first vaccine, we knew we were going to kill of that 30 million. We were, you know, we would, we would lose about 60 of them. So the question is, we, we kill 60, or but how many die if we don't vaccinate? Japan did that experiment for us, uh, probably in the late 70s, if, I'm, if I haven't got my dates off. And they stopped giving the pertussis vaccine. I think the data was they had 50, uh, let's call it 50. Uh, anyway, so let's call it 50 kids that died from vaccine complications or had bad vaccine complications. And they ended up losing 100 times more kids to whooping cough when when they stopped vaccinating. And that led to a market for development of the newer, gentler, kinder pertussis vaccine, which does not cause a, a reaction like that. It just it is it's not a killed virus. It's and it's very good. The problem is it doesn't last. The old vaccine was lifetime. This one we have to give every three to five years. We have to close it there, but I thank you for letting me give you your counterfactual. I promise to tune in next week. I will find that Lancet article, but if you want to help me out, send me a link to uh, com. You can just go there and hit the contact us button, and I'll read the link. Thanks so much. Okay. Well, well that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.